From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. It took a horrible murder for Alaska to revise its statutes for the criminally insane. From some of the most lenient sentencing laws in the country to the strictest laws in the U.S. for the insanity defense. On the night of May 3, 1982, one veteran Anchorage police officer was quoted as saying, This has got to be one of the grisliest nights I've ever seen. Within an hour, seven people lost their lives. Three died in the Black Bull Bar in the Muldoon section of Anchorage, and the other four were shot in Russian Jack Springs Park in East Anchorage. At first, investigators wondered if the two crime scenes were connected, but they soon learned nothing linked the two horrific events. Russian Jack Springs Park, named after Russian immigrant Jacob Marunico, is in East Anchorage. Marunico, nicknamed Russian Jack, immigrated to Anchorage in 1915 and obtained a permit to harvest the trees in the area of the current day park. In 1930, Marunico built a cabin near a natural spring in the area, and this section of Anchorage subsequently became known as Russian Jack Springs. In 1943, the Army claimed the land for wartime purposes, and after the war, the city of Anchorage purchased the parcel from the Army and used it as a park and a prison. In 1959, after Alaska became a state, the prison closed, but the park remained. Russian Jack Springs Park soon became a popular place to camp and play. The park encompasses a golf course, softball fields, ski trails, a ski chalet, and a sledding hill. The Girl Scouts used a section of the park as a day camp, and the Lions Club built a camper park there. Russian Jack Springs Park was a safe place for children to play, families to picnic, and pet owners to walk their dogs. This illusion of safety shattered on May 3, 1982. A woman jogging through Russian Jack Springs Park saw a body lying in a wooded area and then spotted what she thought was another body. She then encountered a tall, thin man who yelled at her, Get out! The woman fled the park and called the police, who soon arrived on the scene and discovered the bodies of four teenagers. The victims included Dean Kimmler and V.J. Sylvester, both 19, B.J.'s girlfriend Sabrina Imlock, 16, and Rebecca Phillips, also 16. The following day would have been Sabrina's 17th birthday. Kimmler and Sylvester had been living in a crowded apartment, but when spring arrived, they decided to move into a tent in the park while they searched for jobs. On the evening of May 3rd, Dean, B.J., Sabrina, and Rebecca cruised the streets of Anchorage in Dean's Orange Dotson. They then returned to the park, apparently to grab the boys' jackets from their tent. 
Detectives later learned that Dean was the first to approach the tent, followed by VJ, then Sabrina, and Rebecca. One by one, the killer shot the teenagers, leaving their bodies where they fell. A young man walking through the park with his wife and two dogs noticed a brand-new pearl-blue bicycle hidden among the trees. The bike had an extra-large frame, a bell on the handle, a cable lock, and a cargo pouch holding a new blue shirt. The man wondered if the bike was stolen, and he considered moving it out of the park. He glanced up from his examination of the bike and saw a man watching him from the woods. The menacing figure spooked the young man, and he quickly left the park with his wife and dogs. He could not get the images of the man and the bike out of his head, though, and he drove back through the park a few minutes later. By then, the bicycle was gone, and an orange Dotson sat in the parking area. The man glanced into the park and saw several people lying on the ground, but he assumed the prone figures were lounging or reading books. When the young man and his wife heard about the murders in the park, they returned to Russian Jack Springs Park and told the police about the bicycle and the shadowy figure watching them from the woods. A jogger reported seeing a tall man walking a blue bicycle down a trail in the park. He described the man as an adult, white male in his late 20s. A woman told authorities she and her young son had been walking through the park when they heard what sounded like fireworks. The boy ran toward the noise, with his mother following closely behind him. The pair soon encountered a tall man stuffing a handgun into the waistband of his pants. The man screamed at them, Get out of here! Investigators found little physical evidence at the crime scene, and since dozens of people had wandered through the park on the warm spring evening, detectives were faced with a large pool of possible suspects. The young man who first saw the blue bicycle in the woods told police he had once worked in a bicycle shop and knew a great deal about bikes. He described the bike in detail and even knew its exact paint color, pearl blue. He convinced detectives the bike was unusual. It was new and taller than average, suggesting it belonged to an adult, but it had a child's bell on the handlebar. Soon after the press released the information about the murders in the park and named the victims, a young woman called the Anchorage Police Department and suggested police question Rebecca Phillips' ex-boyfriend, Tim Larkin. Rebecca had recently broken up with Larkin, and Larkin threatened to kill her. Earlier in the evening, Larkin approached Rebecca and her friends and got into an argument with V.J. Sylvester. Police brought Larkin in for questioning, but Larkin refused to say anything without his attorney present. While they waited to learn more about Larkin, investigators followed up on one of their few leads and began questioning bicycle shop owners about the blue bike. Mike Sanderson, the manager of the bicycle shop, recalled selling a pearl blue bike to a tall man who needed a bicycle with a 27-inch frame. He wanted his bike to have a small cargo bag on the handlebars, a cable lock, and a ding-dong bell. Police requested to see Sanderson's records of the sale. Sanderson told police the man's name was Charles Meach, and he listed his address 
as 2900 Providence Drive. Investigators knew 2900 Providence Drive well. It was the address for the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. Had one of the patients, or perhaps a staff member at the hospital, committed this horrible crime? Charles Meach was born in Traverse City, Michigan. His father was a successful dentist, but his mother suffered from schizophrenia and spent most of her adult life in a mental institute. Charles had a troubled childhood, and as a young man, he was arrested for petty larceny, drug dealing, trespassing, and drunk driving. He was also accused of assaulting several people, including his girlfriend. Meach left Michigan and eventually made his way to Alaska. In 1973, Charles Meach beat 22-year-old Robert Johnson so severely the young man drowned in his own blood. Johnson was intellectually disabled, and Meach confessed to brutally kicking him. He told detectives he was drunk and had nothing against Robert Johnson, but said Johnson's voice irritated him. Meach was arrested and examined by a psychiatrist who determined Meach suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. The psychiatrist and a psychologist testified at trial, saying Meach suffered from hallucinations, lacked emotion, and experienced distorted thinking. Alcohol amplified these symptoms. A jury found Meach not guilty of first-degree murder by reason of insanity and the judge sent him to Atascadero State Hospital in California, a facility for the criminally insane. In 1980, psychiatrists at Atascadero declared that Meech's mental illness was in remission, and they returned him to Anchorage, where he was held at the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. Under Alaska law at the time, if psychiatrists determined Meech was no longer insane, then they had to set him free. Doctors at the Institute were not yet comfortable with releasing Meech, though, so instead they gave him day passes, allowing him to get a job and attend the university. In 1981, Meech found a job as a dishwasher. He also took out a student loan and enrolled for two semesters at the University of Alaska. Meech subsequently worked as a bookkeeper and a clothing salesman. When his employers and fellow workers learned that he lived at the Alaska Psychiatric Institute, Meech and his caregivers at the Institute said he had a drinking problem, which he was currently under control. Privacy laws prevented employees at the Psychiatric Institute from telling anyone about Meech's past. Charles Meech was intelligent and good at manipulating people. He did not feel rules applied to him but he knew what to do and say to get what he wanted. Many of the employees at the Alaska Psychiatric Institute believed that Meech seemed sane, but others were terrified by encounters they had with him. A nurse escorting Meech back to his room felt his menacing presence when he loomed over her in an elevator. And Dr. Mason Robeson noted Meech's control over aggression seemed fragile and he feared Meech would reoffend if not kept in a secure setting. 
Robeson said he felt Meech was the most dangerous patient in the hospital, and perhaps in the state of Alaska. Despite Robeson's warnings, psychiatrists at the Institute gradually reduced the dosage of Meech's medication and allowed Meech more freedom to come and go from the Institute. Doctors decided if Meech continued to do well, they would release him in June. Meech excelled in his college classes, and other students found him friendly but intense and strange. He initially joined Alcoholics Anonymous, well aware that alcohol compounded his psychological problems. By the late spring of 1982, though, he began to consume alcohol again. He bought two pistols, a 38 caliber and a 41 caliber, and hid the guns near the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. Let me take a break for a minute. The puzzle game app, Best Fiends, is a major sponsor for murder and mystery in the last frontier. And I would like to thank everyone at Best Fiends. I appreciate your support. I know we can all agree that this has been a crazy year. Between COVID-19 and in the U.S., the upcoming November elections, it's stressful to watch the news. My advice, when it all gets to be too much, Turn off the TV, pick up your phone, and play a few minutes of Best Fiends. The colorful game and your adorable fiends are sure to make you smile, and the world news will quickly fade for a few minutes while you concentrate on solving puzzles with the help of your fiends. Best Fiends not only relaxes me, but also sharpens my mind and helps me focus when writing about true crime. I also love that I have the option to play the game anytime anywhere, offline. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Detectives interviewed Charles Meech at the Alaska Psychiatric Institute, and Meech denied any involvement in the murders of the four teenagers. Three days later, Meech made a full confession to his psychiatrist, who then contacted the police. According to Meech, on Monday, May 3rd, he awoke to learn someone had stolen his favorite shirt and a cassette tape. He then left the Institute and went to a topless bar, where he drank a beer and bought a dancer a glass of champagne. When he tried to touch the dancer, she got mad and refused to have anything further to do with him. As Meech's rage grew, he drove around Anchorage on his bike, and he remembered seeing a blue tent pitched in Russian Jack Springs Park. He thought he recalled spotting a cassette tape in the tent and decided he would steal the cassette tape to replace the tape someone had stolen from him. Meech returned to the Institute, recovered his 38 caliber handgun from its hiding spot, and headed to the park. He reached the park around 8 p.m., hid his bike in the woods, and walked to the tent. 
According to Meech, he was standing beside the tent when Dean Kimmler approached. Kimmler asked Meech what he was doing, and when Kimmler turned his back, Meech raised his gun and shot him in the back of the head. V.J. Sylvester must have heard the shot and began running toward the tent. Meech had meanwhile started up the trail, and when Sylvester ran past him, he turned and shot Sylvester in the back of the head. Meech next encountered Sabrina Imlock and shot her between the eyes. And finally, he shot Rebecca Phillips in the face. He shot each of the four teenagers once in the head at close range. Dean and Sabrina died immediately, and V.J. and Rebecca died a short time later. Neither V.J. nor Rebecca ever regained consciousness. The state of Alaska charged Charles Meech with the first-degree murders of the four teenagers. But on June 15, 1982, Meech entered a plea of not guilty because of mental disease or defect. This plea had worked for him several years earlier when he was charged with murder for kicking a man to death. So Meech assumed it would work again. The judge moved the trial to Fairbanks because he felt the murders had so traumatized the Anchorage community it would be difficult to find an unbiased jury in the city. The trial began the following December. When Meech confessed to detectives, he said, I'm a fool. I'll admit it. I had some drinks in a bar. I did all the things I wasn't supposed to do. While Meech was awaiting trial, a law professor at the University of Arizona uncovered a paper Meech wrote when he was incarcerated at Atascadero in California. The paper was titled, How to Survive a Multidisciplinary Meeting. A multidisciplinary meeting is where psychologists and psychiatrists examine a criminally insane patient. In Meech's paper, he advised mental patients they could draw sympathy from their captors while undergoing evaluation by expressing a fear of alcohol while simultaneously accepting full responsibility for the crime they committed. Wexler sent a copy of Meech's paper to the Anchorage Times. Alaska Governor J.S. Hammond was furious when he read the article and he asked the Alaska State Legislature to revise the state's statutes for the criminally insane. Within a month of the governor's request, lawmakers created one of the strictest laws for the insanity defense in the U.S. It revised the statutes on sentencing the mentally ill, providing a new possible verdict of guilty but mentally ill. When a person is found guilty but mentally ill, they must serve their time in a mental institution until deemed healthy, and then they will be transferred to a prison for the rest of their sentence. This revision to the Alaska law took place after Meech was charged and did not apply to his trial. He could still be found not guilty because of mental disease or defect, just as he had been in 1973. Meech's jury this time was not so sympathetic to him. On December 23, 1982, Charles Meech III was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to 396 years in prison. 
The families of Meech's four victims sued the Alaska Psychiatric Institute for allowing a dangerous patient to roam the streets of Anchorage. The institute and the families settled out of court, and the institute paid each family $150,000. Charles Meech died of natural causes in a prison cell in the Cook Inlet Jail on December 9, 2004. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the last frontier.